welcome to IOM3 Investigates, the podcast series of the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining. We are one of the UK's major science and engineering institutions and our activities are focused on the promotion and development of all aspects of the materials cycle. These include the science, design, engineering and technology of materials, minerals and mining and their practical applications. We facilitate qualifications, professional recognition and development, share knowledge and provide networking services to a global membership and wider community. We hope you enjoy our podcast series. Hello and welcome. I'm Rachel Stonehouse, Policy Research Fellow at IOM3 and I'm joined by Dr. Colin Church, IOM3 CEO. In this podcast, we'll be looking back over the IOM3 half-day conference, COP26 and beyond, the pathway to net zero, and drawing out some of the golden threads from the day, as well as thinking about what it all means for professionals in materials, minerals and mining, and what's next as we move closer to COP27. Colin, what a fantastic event and discussions reflecting on the Climate Summit, and look at the opportunities and challenges facing some of the key sectors across IOM3. From the extractive and foundation industries to advanced manufacturing and materials applications and research and innovation. But before we turn to look at some of the key threads from the day, it's clear that all of us as humans, citizens and consumers have a role to play in the transition to a low carbon resource efficient society. What's different for IM3 members? Thanks, Rachel. Yeah, it was a really enjoyable event. And I think actually it really answered that question for you because it's clear that the transition to this new economic model that we need to have depends on stuff on things whether it's battery metals whether it's the materials that go into making solar panels whether it's forms of lightweight transport and so on and so forth and of course all of those are the things that the members of IM3 are heavily involved with whether it's finding the metals and minerals in the ground getting them out turning them into something all the way through their various use phases to the end of life and so IOM3 members are an intrinsic part of the solutions that we need. Absolutely. And it was good to hear from professionals working across a range of the areas you just mentioned at the event. For me, that was one of the great outcomes of the day, the recognition of the value of the bigger picture and more joined up thinking. One of the key strengths of IOM3 is the breadth of our membership. And I think that really came through. We had representation from different sectors from right across the supply chain and from both academia and industry in the room and joining the conversation online. We often talk about the power and importance of collaboration and communication. And it was fantastic that the event created an environment for just that, with speakers noting the value and need to think bigger and wider than their material application department or sector and get talking to each other. So if we move to look back over the fantastic presentations and discussion from the day, the Global Methane Pledge was mentioned right at the start of the day by our very first speaker, Emma Wilcox, Chief Executive of the Society for the Environment and IOM3 Sustainable Development Group Chair. The Global Methane Pledge commits nations to collectively limit methane emissions by 30% by 2030 compared to 2020 levels. Colin, why is this important? What is it likely to mean and what changes will we see? So it's important in climate terms because methane is substantially more potent as a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. Its release is one of the accelerating factors of the global changing climate. And quite a lot of methane is released from oil and gas extractive processes, so-called fugitive emissions, if you like, emissions that aren't supposed to be there that, that, that are happening. And a lot of the time that can be dealt with through engineering solutions, through process changes, through different approaches. 
and it can make quite a big difference in relatively short time. And it's not about doing less necessarily extraction. It's about managing that extraction process properly. So it has the advantage of not necessarily challenging some people who might find reducing production a problem whilst making a huge difference potentially to our trajectory on climate change. And it obviously is really relevant to a number of our members who work in the oil and gas industries and who will be able to work to develop different processes or different engineering solutions to indeed reduce those emissions. So I think it's it's potentially hugely important from both the perspective of climate change or addressing climate change and also for some of our members. Another key area that is important both from the perspective of addressing climate change and for our members that was discussed is energy prices. In fact, Laura Cohen, Chief Executive of the British Ceramics Confederation, and Chris MacDonald, Chief Executive Officer of the Materials Processing Institute, couldn't have been clearer about the impact of energy prices and how this can be a significant barrier to decarbonisation in the UK. What can government do to support UK industry to remain globally competitive and on the path to a low carbon and resource efficient society? I think there are a range of things. So historically in the UK, the, the policy decision has been to not have energy prices for industry subsidised by energy prices for consumers, which is broadly speaking, I simplify, but broadly speaking, what happens in some other countries. And that's a political decision that seems unlikely to change, particularly when you have energy prices going up as you do at the moment. So really, you have to address it in different routes. And I think one thing that government has done in the past that it perhaps could do some more of is to support activity on energy efficiency for large scale energy users, both in terms of access to finance, but also in terms of access to information. Quite often, the barrier to undertaking some kind of energy efficiency improvement is not knowing that you can or not knowing which technology to choose. So assisting that, I think, more than is currently the case would be a great help as well. But I think also there's some fundamental industrial changes that are likely to be needed that need real big support from government. And some of the things that we've seen coming forward, like the Clean Steel Fund, that's a good start. Some of the work in the what used to be called the Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, those are good starts. But you're talking about whole scale redevelopment of some industries in order to reduce their dependence on fossil fuels. And the risks inherent in that kind of change are extremely difficult for the private sector to take on on their own without some support from government. So I think recognition of the fundamental importance of these foundation industries, recognition that our economy will depend on their continued success, and then working with them to put in place the industry-specific appropriate mechanisms to enable those to restructure is, is the key thing, I think. Can you give us an example of an industry-specific measure? So, for example, in the steel sector, at the moment, most of the steel that's made in the UK is made by the basic oxygen furnished blast furnished route, which is dependent, generally speaking, on natural gas or coal or oil to heat up things and then coal, coke in the process itself. Now, you can produce steel through electric arc furnaces, but that relies on what is currently very expensive electricity. So you need to find a way working with the steel industry to support that transition where it makes sense. You need also to support the industry in developing new technologies that do away with the need for coal as part of the process. And people will talk about direct reduction of iron, hydrogen as the reductant or indeed as the fuel. But in order to make that kind of switch, your plant has to have access to a lot of hydrogen and that needs to be green hydrogen, hydrogen produced from renewable energy sources. So you can see that 
there's a already just from that one example that there's a wider network that's necessary in order for the steel industry to do its business. You could say the same about the ceramics industry. You could say the same about the glass, all of the foundation industries. And I think also it's important to recognise that a number of these processes release greenhouse gases as part of the process, even if you don't have fossil fuels used as the heating of it. So the chemical reactions in making some ceramics, the chemical reactions in making aluminium, the chemical reactions in making steel, as currently operated, will all release greenhouse gases. So you have to worry about those process emissions as well. For some of them, technological change might be an option. And I've already mentioned hydrogen for steel making, that would help. But for some of them, it might be that the only route to really tackle this is by using carbon capture and storage. And I think that's a real challenge because there's an awful lot of cost and energy implications around carbon capture technologies. It uses a lot of electricity, basically, to make it work. And then what do you do with the carbon dioxide and how do you transport it in a cost effective and environmentally sound way? And where do you then put it? So there's a whole bunch of wider issues. I think basically you can't think about any one of these industries on its own. They're always part of a wider network, a wider system. And that system thinking approach to decarbonisation is essential. You mentioned the hydrogen economy, which many of the speakers said would play a vitally important role in decarbonising their industry. Do you think it's realistic that we'll have a functioning hydrogen economy at the capacity that we need that's economically viable? So the potential demand for hydrogen as the silver bullet for all of these problems far outstrips any likely supply. So I think it will be a question of hydrogen in some circumstances, yes, but perhaps not all of them. And so, for example, I think in the steel industry, using hydrogen as the reductant has a lot of sense to it, but perhaps not using hydrogen as the energy source for heating things up. And there'll be other examples. So hydrogen will play an important part in decarbonisation over the next 20 or 30 years, but it's far and away not the only answer. It's not the silver bullet. We just can't make enough of it and then transport it around efficiently enough. One of the interesting things, and again, this just goes to show how all the different bits of IM3 business link together, is the National Competence Centre did some calculations and they reckon there's not enough carbon fibre in the world to make all of the hydrogen storage tanks you'd need for the kind of levels of hydrogen that are needed for the kinds of things that people are talking about. So, you know, it's a material systems problem. Something else that came across very clearly at the event and an important thread across different parts of the IOM3 membership is critical raw materials. We heard about the extreme increases in nickel prices and that the London Metal Exchange suspended trading from Ian Bobrick, Director of Membership and Professional Standards at IOM3. Security of supply is clearly a really important issue. What other factors should be considered in the upcoming critical mineral strategy? And what role will IOM3 members play? Well, I'll answer the second question first, if I may, which is that several of our members are actually on the advisory group that's working with government to look at this, including our very own president, Neil Glover. Uh, But there are three other members of IM3 who are involved as well. And so already you can see a recognition of the expertise that our membership represents by the fact that they're involved in that conversation. For critical raw materials, I think there's a number of different issues that you have to worry about. And and obviously security supply is, is one, but also the ethics of supply, if you like. And I think there are two aspects to this that are important. One is if we end up exploiting critical raw material supplies in a way that creates huge amounts of environmental damage or huge amounts of social damage to the the local communities and so on and so forth, then that's not right either, particularly because we do know how to do it without creating those negative impacts. So we have to extract these resources responsibly. 
I won't call it sustainable mining because by definition, you're taking stuff out of the ground that you're not replacing. But I do call it responsible mining, doing it in an environmentally sensitive and a socially sensitive way. So that is one aspect of it. The other aspect of it is there's a bit of a balance between national security of supply and global supply. And there's an interesting report released by the Green Alliance Circular Economy Task Force recently, which looked at critical raw materials and looked at this sort of ethical side of it. And one of the things it points out is that if the UK were to take all of the lithium that it needs for batteries, for example, then that would be more than its, quotes fair share. And that would mean that other parts of the world wouldn't be able to decarbonise transport in the same way. And because those CO2 emissions are as impactful, whether they're released in the UK the United States or anywhere, if you are having uneven decarbonisation, that's a negative. And if we have this position where a few rich countries are taking all of the resource that's necessary for this kind of process and nobody else gets hold of it, then the impact will be felt in both rich and poor countries because climate change will continue. So you have to manage that. And that means it's really important to think about things like reuse, circular economy, efficiency of use, recycling. Now, those aren't entire answers, but they must be put in place to reduce the amount that we need to get to do the decarbonisation we need. So there's enough to go around, basically. So there's the issue of making sure you extract it responsibly. There's the issue of making sure you manage what you take responsibly, as in not too much. And also when you've got it, that you keep things flowing around. I think the other aspect on critical raw materials to think about is trying to understand how they then flow in through the economy and having some better idea than we currently do about where they're used and what happens to them at end of life. And, and again, that feeds into the, the reuse, the recycling, the keeping, if you like, idea. And you know, we don't mine very many critical raw materials here in the UK, but we've got a shed load of them in the devices and equipment that we've got here in the UK. So how do we deal with that is another issue that I think is very relevant. And then, of course, I and three members in the round are going to be involved in all different aspects of that chain from finding the stuff in the first place all the way through. As we said earlier, that's what our own three members do. You mentioned the need for resource efficiency and keeping things in use for as long as possible. And this need to shift to a more circular economy was a clear thread that featured throughout the event. Right from Christian Spano, the Director of Innovation at ICMM, the International Council on Mining and Metals, talking about the role of mining in the circular economy and highlighting the current level of circularity is less than 9%. To Mark Jolly, Professor and Director of Manufacturing at Cranfield University, stressing the need to dematerialise. To Adam Reid, Director of External Affairs at Suez and President of the Chartered Institution of Waste Management, discussing the huge potential of resource efficiency. And Flavi Lauris, Chair of the IOM3 Construction Materials Group, presenting the need to reuse in construction. Do you think resource efficiency and the shift to a circular economy is finally getting the attention it deserves? And what about with policymakers? I think there are signs that it's starting to bite. People are starting to think about it. It's an idea that's getting traction. And you have government departments who traditionally would have ignored it entirely starting to talk about it and investigate the options. But we're a long way off. I mean, Adam and others made the point that at COP26, it wasn't really on the agenda. You know, resource efficiency, circular economy, avoiding waste, all of that kind of conversation really wasn't mainstream at COP26. You know, there were side events, some of the ones that Adam set up, for example. But it wasn't really seizing people. But there is no pathway to a just transition to a low carbon resource efficient society without resource efficiency. You can't do it in a sensible way. So it is really important that people clock this and get engaged with it. And again, you know, we were talking earlier about battery metals and critical raw materials and so on and so forth. And 
keeping those in our economy for as long as possible rather than dispersing them to landfill sites or whatever else it might be reduces the amount that we need to take out elsewhere and that's really important going forward both in terms of the negative impacts potentially of extraction and the fact that otherwise there's not enough to go around so you're starting to see policymakers take notice but it's very early i would say if you could speed it up what would you like to see what policy measures would make a difference that's a really good question when people ask me this question i start off by saying the the best solution at one level would be to make raw materials, new virgin materials, more expensive, whether that's a materials tax or a resource tax or whatever you want to call it, or whatever else. The problem so very often is that it's hard to do that on any kind of a global level. I mean, just look at the the fact that after I don't know, 30 or 40 years of debate and discussion, there's still no such thing as a single carbon price, let alone a single price for raw materials. But clearly, if the stuff that we have is more valuable, people will take more care of it. You know, that's just human nature. That's just what happens. So that is the the ultimate magic waiver wand. Everything else we do, therefore, is is a kind of a substitute for that, a way of placing more value in the materials. So, for example, the plastic packaging tax that the UK is bringing in in April 2022 will make it more attractive to use recycled plastic in your plastic packaging. That is a way of addressing some of these issues around the value of virgin versus recycled materials. I think we will see the sort of thing that happened to nickel, where its price spiked, happening to other materials. And that, I think, will drive businesses to think about other ways of dealing with material supply. And what businesses often say, in my experience, is if they've got a consistent and predictable price, they can deal with that at almost any level assuming that somebody out there is still willing to buy whatever product it is that has that material in it. What they really struggle with is price volatility. And, you know, you, you can easily see why that might be. You might arrange a, a contract with somebody to deliver a large piece of kit in three months' time based on current raw material prices. And by the time you've in a position to buy the raw materials to build the piece of kit, they've gone up and you've negotiated a price. So what do you do? So that price volatility is really problematic. And that, again, encourages people to think more carefully about where they're getting their material from and how they're getting it. I think the trend towards thinking about extended producer responsibility is also potentially helpful. So this is the idea that somebody is responsible for a product that they place on the market all the way through its life to end of life. And therefore, if you put something on the market that's hard to deal with at end of life, it'll cost you more. Whereas if it's something that's easy to deal with, it'll cost you less. And there are companies that make their living out of this. I mean, one of the companies represented by a member at the event uses a lot of this process to make sure that its kit comes back to it so it can disassemble and reuse the precious materials and the difficult to make materials that are in there. And spreading that further across the value chains is another way of, I think, addressing some of these issues. Thinking about how we use and reuse materials and knowing more about where materials are is clearly really important. At the conference, Neil Glover, Head of Materials Research at Rolls-Royce and ION3 President, talked about the materials opportunities for aerospace. And Serena Cusson, Head of Department of Materials Science and Engineering at the University of Sheffield, talked about next generation battery cathodes and the importance of whole systems approaches for sustainability. You mentioned earlier about the need to think about material systems, and we've been publicly saying, along with others, about the need for a coherent material strategy. Why is that so important and necessary for the transition? 
as you say, we've been calling for a while for some form of coherent strategy across materials. And I think it's one of those things that at one level is a bit of a no-brainer, isn't it? You know, would you not want to understand where all the material in your economy is coming from and going to? But I think there's another set of reasons as well. So a coherent material strategy is really important for the transition because materials are so important to the transition. They are fundamental underpinnings of the transition to a low carbon resource efficient society. We can't make that transition without materials. We can't make that transition without applying those materials in the best way that we can. As an example, you can talk about hydrogen economy being the answer to everything, but it isn't. It will need to be used in some areas, but it can't be used in all areas. How do you decide which areas it's going to be used in? How do you decide, therefore, how to prioritise the materials that are needed to support the hydrogen economy in that or this or the other use? You have to take a holistic view across the piece, otherwise you're going to end up with some very odd, perverse outcomes. That doesn't mean to say that government needs to intervene at every level of detail, because we're all well aware that that's a problematic role for a modern government. But setting the overall strategy, the overall direction and how things needs to work together and then allowing the other parts of the economy and society to work their magic is the right approach, I think, in this space. I think that it's traditionally the case in the UK that government attention and public attention is focused on the application of materials, what what they're used for. And so, for example, making airplanes, making cars, making biomedical devices, making semiconductors and materials policy has generally been seen through that lens. So how do we produce composites for airplanes? How do we produce titanium for implants or whatever else it might be? And that's fine at one level, but the problem you then get is that you have an issue of lack of read across. And so you might have the automotive industry that decides it needs to or even just an individual car company that it needs to develop a new alloy or a new composite for this thing. And it will go to its automotive supply chain and it will get its automotive supply chain to look into this. And at what point does that conversation interface with the conversation in the aerospace supply chain where they're looking for a broadly similar composite or alloy or whatever it might be for broadly similar reasons, but going down a separate supply chain without that read across? So that lack of read across means that you're getting potentially inefficiencies, gaps of lack of synergies that exist and could be exploited. It's really good that the government started to talk about perhaps developing some kind of advanced materials strategy. At one level, that's really good because at least there's an engagement in this conversation. The problem that IM3 and others have with this idea of an advanced material strategy is what's advanced. So, for example, carbon fibre, is that advanced or is it not advanced? And how do you define which bit is and which bit isn't? How about steel? There are some really, really exotic steel alloys out there that are very carefully tuned to their particular use. Is steel advanced or not advanced? And then you have beyond the sort of nature of the material itself, the process involved, is the process advanced even if the material is ordinary? So, for example, glue laminated timber can be incredibly strong. Is that an advanced material? And we have members who spend their lives doing research in that space who would absolutely argue that it is. There are other people who say, well, timber can't be an advanced material because it's been around forever. So as soon as you start saying advanced materials, you start giving yourself a whole load of boundary issues that are problematic. You also start to run into the problem of supply chains as well. So you might have an advanced material now, so a really interesting alloy, for example. But at some point that was bulk metal. 
or elements of it were bulk metal. And if you just worry about your advanced material thing and you don't worry about that supply chain, then you can run out of the stuff to make this lovely advanced material or you can't get it in the purity that you need or you can't get it at the price that you need. So putting advanced in front of material strategy is problematic, but at least people are starting to talk about it, which is, which is, which is good. But fundamentally, you have to have that holistic view across the piece. Otherwise, we are going to struggle to, as a society, allocate resources, materials appropriately to manage the solutions that we need. I think something that goes hand in hand with that is the conversation around skills. Sectors IOM3 members work in can be seen as, well, not always the good guys. For example, heavy industry, mining or oil and gas, but clearly all have really important roles in the economy and in the transition. And if an industry isn't seen as attractive, it's harder to get the right talent. Do you think we can change the narrative? Do you think we need to? Absolutely, we need to. And I think you can, but it, it, it does take time and it does take effort. And it does take collaboration across all sorts of different organisations, IM3, but also lots of others as well. I think there's, there's a real crunch that you can see coming around the skills that enable humanity to extract minerals and metals from, from the earth, for example. We don't currently have an active undergraduate mining engineering course in the UK. The number of students taking geology A-level is plummeting and the number of university courses is, is dropping as well. And you can see the situation where all of those people who were trained over the past period of time and who've reached, you know, reasonably senior positions in organisations, they're probably in their 50s. So they're probably 10 or so years away from retirement. And if you don't have the cohort coming up through the industry behind them, who's going to have the skills to do responsible mining? Who's going to have the skills to manage that extractive process in a way that doesn't have too many negative impacts on the environment, doesn't make a mess of local communities, and is efficient and effective and all the rest of it? So that's one area where IOM3 is particularly concerned about, the emerging skills gap. More generally across the piece, everyone I think who looks at this is always worried about how many people go into science, technology, engineering and mathematics subjects. And of course, our work is, is related to that. So we're strong supporters of the work of Engineering UK and others to promote STEM, as it's called, subjects and, and the careers that are available in there. But I think there are some specific issues, particularly around the extractives for IOM3 is areas of interest. And you're absolutely right, Rachel, that the public perception of the kind of job you might end up with is a big turnoff to people wanting to go into these kinds of careers. Research suggests that parental views are very important to many children in terms of choosing both subjects at school and then future careers. And if your parents and the social media that you see and the things that are around you say that mining is a dirty word, for example, then clearly that's going to be a bit of a problem for you. An anecdote that I like to share around public perception as IM3 was looking around to get a new energy provider and we approached one energy provider who had an ethical stance and they came back to us and said, no, we reject you as a customer because you're to do with mining. And I will confess to having lost my rag a little bit and gone public on Twitter. But the point I was trying to make is that, you know, this organisation made a big thing about a lot of its energy coming from solar power and wind power. Well, where the hell did it think the materials to make the solar panels and the wind farms was coming from if it wasn't from mining? 
Anyway, all of that got sorted out and the point was made. But that just instinctive reaction against the word mining is a problem because no mining, no stuff. And you mentioned just now about us changing our energy provider. So Iron 3 has been working to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. So we've signed up to the pledge to net zero and we're working on reducing our emissions in-house. IOM3 supports members in the transition through content, influence, events, and we're also a founding signatory to the Professional Bodies Climate Action Charter. An important part of signing up to the charter is the climate action plans. What would you like these to achieve? And more widely, what are the benefits of signing up to the charter? I think climate action plans have the potential to be really helpful and interesting because quite often as an individual member of a professional body, and I'm a member of professional bodies as well, the question you have is, well, what should I do? that's new or different or better how do i leverage my professional status experience or whatever else to make a positive difference and giving people some idea of what that might be in their professional life is something that as a professional body we could and should do and i think climate action plans in that space could support very much how we do that and and what advice we give and what we should ideally be doing across all professional bodies is giving people advice that's tailored to the profession that they're in but coming from a solid and shared scientific and technical understanding and that to answer your second part of your question is one of the wider benefits of signing up to the charter is it's bringing together professional bodies from all walks of life law medicine accountancy finance engineering science the whole shebang and hopefully and this is what we're all trying to work towards, it will mean that we are collectively able to provide advice to our members that draws on that expertise across the piece and then is customised to the individual profession. So you know, we would want, for example, to make sure that the advice that we gave was legally robust, that was uh, financially literate and technically sound and environmentally appropriate. And you, know, you can bring all of that to play through that wider charter membership. And I think that brings us nicely full circle back to the theme of working together and the benefits of collaboration. A great phrase for me that came out of the event was Christian said transformation of the conversation, slight tongue twister. The IPCC Working Group 2 report was published a couple of weeks ago and it was very clear in its messaging. How do you think the conversation needs to change and what shifts do you think we'll see? So we touched on it a bit already. I think that there needs to be a much more explicit recognition of the role of materials and of resource efficiency and circular economy in the transition. I think urgency needs to step up another pace or two. I think that's a really important part of it. I think that there's a sort of sense at the moment of, you know, as we record this in mid-March, we're all deeply conscious of the horrific events in Ukraine. And that is taking quite a lot of attention from the public and media and politicians, rightly so. But the climate crisis is still with us and it isn't slowing down at all. And we need also to make sure that in our reaction to the events in Ukraine, we don't end up making the climate crisis worse. So for me, the the Working Group 2 report is really important as a a reminder of, of the importance of some of these actions. And another nudge if nudge was needed that this is the decade the 2020s is the decade in which a lot needs to change if we're going to be at all successful in keeping global warming to broadly manageable levels and again working group two report makes it clear that that's not a given and that consequences of not doing so are pretty scary for a lot of us and you talked about the need to keep the focus on climate action so finally as we wrap up this podcast today 
What's next in the lead up to COP27 and how do we maintain the momentum? So the UK remains the president of the COP, or uh, Alok Sharma is the president of the COP, until the opening of COP27 in Sharma Sheikh in Egypt later this year. And so the UK does have a strong leadership role. And I think the importance of that is to try and make the various pledges and agreements that were reached at Glasgow reality, or at least move them forward somewhat. In the words of more than one presenter at the event that we're talking about, promises mean nothing, implementation is what counts. So I think a lot more focus on implementation, doing, making the difference is really, really important. And there, you know, there's some signs, lots of people are talking about acceleration of deployment of renewable energy. That's got to be a good thing. But we also ought to worry more about energy efficiency, which is always talked about more in the absence than in the presence, unfortunately. And I hope a growing recognition of the role of circular economy, resource efficiency, material science and engineering, mining and minerals extraction in underpinning all of this. Okay, well, all that's left for me to say then is thank you, Colin. Thank you to all our fantastic speakers at the event and everyone who attended in person and online. And thank you to you for listening. Thank you. Bye. For more information about us, visit iom3.org. Or to keep up to date with our latest news, follow us on social media using at iom3 on Twitter and at the Institute of Materials, Minerals and Mining on LinkedIn. If you're interested in our upcoming podcasts or want to get involved, please subscribe to hear more from us through Apple, Google Podcasts or Spotify.